Hi, Don. Hi, Tanya. I'm very excited to discuss Phyllis Tickle's book. Me too. The Great Emergence, How Christianity is Changing and Why. Mm -hmm. Very dense, but juicy, good stuff. Absolutely. Before we jump in, do you want to open in prayer? I would love that. So I brought along another one of her books, and she has a volume of books called The Divine Hours, which is a manual for fixed hour prayer, which I don't know a lot about, but I have a couple of these, and I've used them at different times. They're set up into days and uh, times of year and certain times of day where you would read through a set of scriptures, and then there are some prayers in there. And if you're sort of looking for ways to play with prayer and practice in different ways, this is one of those ways available to you. So since this is her work, I figured this would be appropriate Perfect. for today. So I'll read one now, and then I'll read one to close. How's that? That sounds great. Okay. Almighty and merciful God, it is only by your gift that your faithful people offer you true and laudable service. Grant that I may run without stumbling to obtain your heavenly promises through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Now, is that one from a certain season? So this is the Friday nearest to November 2nd is what I'm reading from, and that's how the book is organized. Mm -hmm. So you just sort of pick the day that you're on, and some of them sink in with me, and others sort of just sort of <laughs> deflect off, you right. know, like they don't really stick to me. But I did use this manual through a period of time where I just didn't have the words for prayer, and it was helpful to me. I mean, I can't say that it's something that I could adopt into my life. You know, like the expectation is that you would kind of pray through the beginning in the morning and then there's a midday and then there's a an evening and then there's um like kind of right before you go to bed and but for a time it was helpful to me and and it was encouraging and hearing a different voice and and it reads through a bunch of different scriptures that I normally wouldn't read and right the surprise so. of encountering an expression that you wouldn't have come right. across otherwise absolutely and it's for people all over the world reading you know praying through fixed hour prayer every day. It was interesting to adopt it for a little while and, and I enjoy going back to it. So it's there for you if you decide that you want to try that out. And we'll have information about that book and Phyllis Tickle's book on our website at giftgirls.blog. Yay. Yay. So, so this book. Oh my I goodness. have read this book and listened to it, I think twice, <laughs> because that's how challenging it is for me personally. It's above my pay grade. <laughs> it, I have to work really hard to take it in. So I'll begin with that. It is not the average book that I would pick up and read. And yet I think it's been foundational to sort of this journey um, of expansiveness in faith. It was perfect to, to kind of reread it and pick it up again and be challenged by it again. Right. So, And it was an idea I had not encountered or thought of. I guess her big idea, she's an academic. Mm -hmm. And she had a career in publishing and specifically Christian publishing. But the big idea is it's in a historical context that we are now in the midst of a new reformation, if you will, that every 500 years or so, the church and society all around sort of rebuild themselves around a new set of values. And as she says, a new authority or where is the authority now? Right. And so that the reformation would have been the new authority was the scripture and only the scripture. Right. And so that's kind of been taken apart in the last century 
and we're in the beginnings of putting together what the next expression will be of the church. And not only the church, but all society. So she, she explains that the Great Reformation brought the nation state, it brought capitalism, it brought literacy, mm-hmm. all of these things. And so it's connected to history outside of the church as well. Absolutely. And right. so that we're in the midst of another upheaval, or as she says, a rummage sale. Right. right. And that notion of the rummage sale is what I find particularly useful in my own experience of faith. She borrowed it from someone else. That wasn't her original thought, which I found surprising because I didn't quite remember that. Um, I attribute the rummage sale to her, but it's Mark Dyer, an Anglican bishop, on page 16. He says, the only way to understand what is currently happening to us as 21st century Christians in North America is first to understand that about every 500 years, the church feels compelled to hold a giant rummage sale. And he goes on to say, we are now living in and through one of those 500-year sales, where Christianity in particular will kind of take out everything when you think about having a yard sale. You take all of the stuff out that you, you know, are done with, and you kind of look through and decide, well, maybe this I'm going to keep, you know, but a lot of it is not useful to you anymore. And so you're getting rid of it and sort of cleaning house. And that is what the rummage sale idea is, essentially. And you can feel it in your everyday experience of being a Christ follower nowadays, I think, where there are things that later on in the book, she'll talk about your inherited church, you know, and that's the church that you've come from, your your church background or Christ following background that birthed you into Christianity. But then you'll find a place where you may decide that no longer fits. And that has certainly been my experience for a long time now. And so you're deciding, like, what is a value to hang on to? Like, what is essential and what makes sense? What works? And then what are the things that have become burdensome, um, have become hurdles, have become obstacles even to what they initially were intended to be, you know, helpful that idea of um, inherited church, and she she compares it to emergent church. So you start with your inherited church, and then maybe you're moving toward your the emergent church. Right. And for me, having grown up in a secular home, it was a really fascinating notion because I didn't have an inherited church. Okay. So I feel that is why this book resonated with me so much, even though I was already a Christian when I read this book. I felt like I am the ultimate emergent because uh-huh. I was drawn to all of it. I was drawn to the center of it. Uh-huh. And then I was trying to fit into one of the quadrilaterals. She has this fabulous diagram. diagram. Yeah. And the diagram morphs into these other diagrams. So again, this is like when I was preparing for our conversation, I felt like I was getting ready to do a book report because there was so much in here. And I thought, I'll never have a handle on all of this. <laughs> right. Thankfully, it's not a book report or a book Absolutely. review. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's my experience of taking in what I understand of her work. A lot of it I simply don't understand. But I love engaging with it because there are pieces of it that I feel like this is my life. Like she's describing my life, even though she's coming at it from this historical perspective, this really big picture. Yeah. So but the she quadrilateral. Has this, this graph called the quadrilateral on page 126. And then it goes, she develops it on and on and what it looks like as the emergent movement has been growing. Mm-hmm. But so these four, these four corners are liturgicals, which she includes not only Catholic, but Orthodox Christianity and Coptic Christianity and 
Episcopalians, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Then social justice Christians, which would used to be sort of what people would call mainline Christians. Conservatives, I'm not really sure what that is. Maybe Baptists? She said um, evangelicals would fall oh. in that. And, you know, the word that is, of course, derogatory now is fundamentalist. You know, so right. she's like, this is the corner that's the problem. That's uh, what she said. And meaning that there's value there, but they've gotten a bad rap in some ways. Some ways they've earned it. In other ways, you know, they're, they have a part to play. And trying to find the right word to describe them was a challenge. And she so has conservative. I I didn't know where the word fundamentalist came from. Mm -hmm. And when I read this book, she has a very quick and simple sort of historical bit about where the fundamentalists, where that word came from. Okay. And it was a reaction to Darwin, actually. Really? Yes, well, because the churches were responding to Darwin's theories. And uh, a group of conservative Protestant churches had these series of meetings. Toward the end, they came out with their list of fundamentals. Okay. And I read through okay, that list. That's right. And it wasn't that different from what a lot of churches still believe. Uh -huh. So that sort of caught me off guard. I've, I've kind of parked the fundamentalist in that evil corner. Right. Right. Interesting, so, right? Yeah. Yes. But they, <laughs> the aura around them is tainted for some Stigma of us. Stigma. Yeah. Right. Of all the things that... Stereotype. Yes. And the things that as a, Christian, a lot of Christians don't want to be associated with. And the fourth corner is renewalists, which she describes as Pentecostals and charismatics. Mm -hmm. She also has a really helpful history of that. Right. Same thing. I thought of Pentecostals as these crazy people with snakes <laughs> and, you know, I don't have a lot of experience with speaking in tongues uh -huh. or any of that. And it was just fascinating. Uh -huh. And it was the first um, egalitarian expression of the church. And was, that's the part. Go ahead and continue because yeah, I want to tag on to that. Well, you know, my constant refrain about we're all priests, the yes. uh, priesthood of believers, that sort of came about through the Pentecostal movement. And the charismatics an are that, yeah. closely related to that. Right. Um, so I just found all that so fascinating. And it was started by an African-American pastor. And the first people were Hispanics and African-Americans. And then very quickly it drew in a very diverse group. Yes. And I just found out that so fascinating because, again, I had this stereotype in my mind about what a Pentecostal was. Uh-huh. And then I was like, maybe I'm kind of a Pentecostal. <laughs> I don't know. I don't. That is one of the things you find when you read this. You keep trying to, like, put yourself. And, and she is very clear about I'm making a bunch of generalizations here, and I sort of apologize for that. And yet, in order to have this conversation some generalizations have to be made, you know, and so she's clear about that. And you find yourself, or I found myself, am I this? Am I that? Like, where am I? Where would I locate myself, you know, in this picture? I did the it's same funny. thing. <laughs> and because I didn't have an inherited church, at right. least you and many people can look at that quadrilateral and they go, okay, well, I started here. Yes. And I feel like, you know, I had Mormon friends growing up. That made a big impression on me. And uh -huh. I was really interested about what she said about Mormons. Which is that she, she completely took them off the grid. And she feels like they might be the third, fourth, fourth expression of Abrahamic religion. Yeah. Which I found just so shocking and wonderful. Right. Because I grew up in an area that had a lot of Mormons, and a lot of my friends growing up were Mormons, and they're wonderful families. And I was drawn to the faith through them a little bit. I was never interested or involved in Mormonism. Uh-huh. But I did learn about it, and I was really drawn to their family's cohesiveness yeah. and love and generosity and devotion to mm -hmm. each other and to their community. Mm -hmm. So 
most most churches that I've been to, or when I hear Christians talk about it, they put Mormons in the category of cult. Right. Which yes. is, I don't know. Yeah. But that she says it might be the fourth, the fourth. Abrahamic religion. Right. It's just, wow, that's so cool. But growing up, I had Mormon friends. I had Catholic friends. When I met Scott, he was Episcopalian. So we tried on that for a while. Uh-huh. And, and so I feel like I had tried to see which corner Scott and I would fit in. Right. And in a way, it was always the center. Right. Uh, that is a conversation between yes. all the expressions. Whereas the Reformation was characterized by divisiveness in the splitting and splitting Presbyterians. And then the Presbyterians split right. into five different groups. And right. et cetera, Protestantism et cetera. was born from the Reformation out of those two principles of Scripture alone, sola scripture. And the priesthood of all believers, which is interesting that it's still something that we are trying to hash out today. You know, I mean, it's still not, it doesn't feel resolved. Maybe it is in no, my experience. I don't think. You it, know, so I thought that was interesting, that point. But yeah, the divisiveness that came from that. And then the swirling center now, this 500 year period is birthing. I can see that for you, always kind of being the center. Yeah, and saying, okay, I can fit in over here, like this is right, or I can fit in over there, but really it's always the center yes. that I've been in, and so I can kind of identify with any of the corners a little bit. Does it feel chaotic to you? Uh, sometimes I feel like a fraud okay. in different environments. Okay. You know, like, okay, well, I'll try this on, but I don't this I don't subscribe to it 100%. Okay. But a lot of times I, when I read this, I go, oh, it's just the expression, that particular expression of the faith. Mm -hmm. That didn't feel comfortable for some reason. But the heart of it, yeah. the really essential things that we hold in our closed fists, so to speak, right. know, are always there. Uh -huh. You know, the incarnational experience of Christ. Yes. So it's very hopeful overall, this book, to me. Definitely. I think if you've ever read any of the books about the current state of the church, you know, in America, pretty much doom and gloom the demise of the church as we know it, you know, which sounds very hopeless, hopeless. She mentions in there uh, the word guilt. It sounds like we've done something wrong. It sounds like judgment. It sounds like we've we've lost the plot. You know, we've we're off track. We're not something's, evangelizing hard enough. Yeah, something, <laughs> you know, something has gone wrong. And here is, you know, this mess that we're in. And there is, in those books, at least, you know, my take on them, there is some expression of like, and we should feel bad about it. You know, um, there is some, it's someone is to blame, you know, and let's point the finger here, here and here. This is where we can say. And she takes a very open handed approach from a historical perspective, looking at like, this has happened over and over again. And the church still is vibrant. You know, the church still exists. A new expression is born. And she has a list of things that happen every time this 500-year rummage sale happens. And that's the most comforting part, that we're not on this path to destruction. It may be, of course, church as we know it. Although she says that in each one of these rummage sales, the previous expression of the church reacts, yes. it changes. It also has a little rummage sale, and it has a new expression of an old thing. So the Catholic Church, obviously, it's still around. But it had to do its own little adjustment in response to the Reformation. Right. And it came alive in a new way, too. Right. And it also grew at that time. Yes. So it is very hopeful. Right. This is the, the list 
let's see, this is from actually a workbook. So I feel like I should describe that to people that um, my experience with this book has been through reading it physically, listening to it on Audible so numerous times. And also there's a video series available if you want it, where you actually get to see her and hear her talking and a workbook that accompanies that. And, and I have written all through it. Look at you and all your workbooks. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Who is that? <laughs> and all my sticky notes, it's a mess. But anyway, she has a really concise list in the workbook. So I'd like to read that. She says that the patterns that repeat every time humanity, so not just the church, not just Christianity, but history, goes through one of these great 500-year reconfigurations. This is what happens every time. Every time the dominant and challenged form of Christianity does not cease to be. <laughs> every time the expressions of the old way have to drop back and reconfigure to make space for the new. Every time... The faith itself spreads and grows both geographically and demographically. Every time there are many expressions of the thing that is emerging. And every time there is one resounding question to be answered, and it is always the same question. What, what is, is the authority? authority? And I remember <laughs> us initially reading this and having a field day with that question. I mean, it would come up in all kinds of conversations, you know, like, well, why do you think that? What is the authority? You know, like, what are you pointing to? Because you do it, whether you know you're doing it or not, you're looking for that. You know, as humans, we look for that to help us understand, are we on track? Are we making sense? Is this, does this have meaning? And so. she says at one point, the human being without a clear authority is a sad and depressed person or something. <laughs> Tell right. that to our kids. <laughs> It was some phrase that we do need it as humans. We do need to know where the authority is mm -hmm. and that the mess that we're in or this feeling of what's happening mm -hmm. is that struggle to figure out what is the next authority. And since the Reformation until now, it's been for Christians, the scriptures and the scriptures only. Right. Although you could argue with the Catholic, the Catholic tradition, maybe that's not so. Mm -hmm. Well, and also with my inherited church is Pentecostalism. So the Holy Spirit is also an entity that as a Pentecostal, you would argue there's authority there, you know, and so it's not just scripture, but in addition to scripture, there is the Holy Spirit at work, speaking, acting, leading, and that is an authority, you know, to be followed. So that was my experience. When you were talking about Pentecostalism being an egalitarian expression. Having grown up in a Pentecostal denomination, that was not my experience. Isn't that interesting? Right? So I was somewhat shocked. I mean, I have heard the historical story about what would be called the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the initial evidence of speaking in tongues. And um, that I do have some experience with, actually. <laughs> That's a story for another time. But anyway... <laughs> First of all, I was surprised that it was an African-American. I did not know that. That piece is missing from my history of my own inherited church. Isn't that interesting? That makes me question some things, yep. right? That is not what I experienced or saw in terms of leadership or role models or, you know, and I, I lived in a diverse community. I lived in a city. That was not what I saw in my church. Very interesting. 
and egalitarianism was not the message given to me as a woman. Being a leader in the church was not made available to me, despite my inclination toward it. You know, and the I, history of your own inherited church. Right. So that's very interesting. I mean, I sort of attribute that to, well, that happened at Azusa Street in California. Uh, California <laughs> is different. I grew up in New England. So those are worlds apart, you know, in I, the sense of those aspects, I think. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's just that society hasn't caught up to that. So you see right. men, white men leading mm -hmm. everywhere. And so our society wasn't ready for it. So maybe even an expression of the Pentecostal church wasn't ready because the people to in carry it that on, ready. there was no structure to carry yeah. it on. It's a beautiful picture and I loved reading it and it made me feel so, nostalgic's not the right word, but happy that there was something there of that type of beauty to begin with. Because I value my experience growing up as a Pentecostal, but it's not something that I, in the same ways, of course, here's my rummage sale, right? It's not the same for me going forward as it was from where I came. And in terms of teaching my children and like the Holy Spirit is very present to me. I'll say someone that I look to for guidance as well as scripture, as well as friendships, as well, you know, books. There's a variety of things I look to as authority. And I have to say, just as, as women, I think we need to be more in touch with the Holy Spirit than maybe others, just because I think when we have one of those inclinations, one of those callings, mm -hmm. and it feels like it's going to take a lot of guts and it's going to, it's impossible to do, mm -hmm. and you go to check in with your community, if you're a woman and you say, you know, I feel God is leading me to become a pastor, I feel God is leading me to start a business that community might say no, right? So <laughs> You're speaking hypothetically, of course. It's right? very important for women <laughs> to be able to depend on the Holy Spirit mm -hmm. more because you're not going to get that support or that feedback from you. You can't trust that Oftentimes community you sometimes. Do not. Yes. Right. It's not always, but it's considered emotionalism. It's considered a whim. It's considered less than a calling. And, and in scriptures as well, because mm -hmm. it was written in a time mm -hmm. where women didn't have any freedom or, or power. Right. So we can't even really look to that in terms of right. some of those callings. Yeah, those responses yeah. were the same for women in the Bible. Absolutely. There's an uphill battle for us. Yeah. <laughs> so somehow I find all this very comforting just because of the big scope of it. Yes. That we are just a small part. I think sometimes we can be, I, I know, I can be, feel too much responsibility for my time and place. That we're really in this historical context. Mm -hmm. That helps put things in perspective in terms of how we spend our time and what we get frantic over and what we consider worthwhile and our part in things. You know, it gives us more time. Think about parenting. Like if you think about any worthwhile thing that you give yourself to. So it's something to think about in our culture when everything is, you know, quick, quick, quick. And you're looking at news that happened 10 seconds ago and, you know, all of those things that keep us running, running, running. When we're part of something much bigger, if we can step back a little bit and, and understand that that makes us, puts us in a small position, but not an ineffectual position where we, we matter. So. What else needs to be said about Phyllis Tickle? Well, one thing I'll say that I found very interesting that she says that there will always be when you have when you have this kind of 
new expression or renewal, there will always be a backlash yes. from the people in the corners. And yet that the backlash provides ballast for the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I found that concept so interesting. She talks about a boat and that if you didn't have these people in the corners pulling back and questioning and pushing against and right. digging down into their beliefs, into their expression of the church, right. the whole thing would just spin out of control out and tip of part, over. Yeah. That we need that reaction. We need that backlash from the fundamentalists or from the liturgicals. We right. need that backlash to keep the whole thing afloat, which was fascinating to me. Right. Just an interesting image. Yep. And it gave me a new respect and appreciation for the people that are holding their ground in the corners. Right. Because normally I'm not inclined to appreciate them very much. Yeah, to treat them as the problem. If only right. you would acquiesce and move from your position, then everything would work out. Right. You know, there's that sort of myth going around. Yeah, absolutely. I thought it would be fun to read something. We haven't read anything from the book. Yeah, please do. Um, This is on page 135, and I just thought this sort of captured a little bit of her voice, and it was such an interesting image to describe something that's sort of hard to grasp. So she's describing here the emergence center. Okay. There is enormous energy in centripetal force, especially as it gathers more and more of its own kind into itself. Centripetal force, though, is usually envisioned by us as running downward like the water in a bathtub. The gathering force of the new Christianity did the opposite. It ran upward and poured itself out like some bursting geyser in expanding waves of influence and nourishment. Where once the corners had met, now there was a swirling center, its centripetal force racing from quadrant to quadrant in ever-widening circles, picking up ideas and people from each, sweeping them into the center, mixing them there, and then spewing them forth into a new way of being Christian, into a new way of being church. Mm-hmm. I just love that. Yeah, it's and, so positive. Yeah. Like growth, like energy and transformation and purposeful even, you know, and like not just this negative response to all of these factors that are at work. One of my responses to this book was, how do they know? Right? <laughs> but it sounds like they have such hubris yeah. um, to say, well, this is what's happening and we know right. it. And this is where it's going. Like they even have the audacity to sort of say, and it's going here. It's not that I disagree with anything that they're pointing toward. And I see what they're saying that she talks about it's going toward conversation and harmonious conversations between the quadrants, basically. Right. But I did have that response to the book a little bit. Like, Uh well, why do they think they know? It's just the same as anyone in their corner saying, we know and you don't. Right. So I did have that response to it a little bit. Uh Uh-huh. I can see that. I I think I've placed her in the position in my own brain of being like a sociologist of religion even though she is a Christian, so maybe that's not fair to other religions. And, and she's mainly dealing with Christianity anyway in her review. I mean, when you read this book, she calls it like a kind of a cursory, like very simplistic history of things. To me, it feels exhaustive almost. I mean, she's just sort of listing one thing after another that has brought us to this space. I loved that part. Because then you you say, of course, it makes complete sense that Einstein. that the church is feeling these things. Yes, Freud, I can't even list them. Young, Darwin, and a whole bunch of people that we wouldn't recognize their names. Right. But she's talking about the church shifting from its views on slavery 
you know, using scripture as the basis, you know, to first of all, either uphold or condone slavery and then moving from that, you know, the cultural shift and the shift within the church. She just goes through and lists almost every factor you can think of that's brought us to this moment. And she names it, and maybe others, the great emergence. And to me, as a just an average person, it just feels like the water we're swimming in. I can't name it. You know, like, did the people living during the Reformation call it the Reformation? Or was it in hindsight that they looked back? And, you know, I'm sure there were some people already calling it, but most probably not, not really knowing what was happening, but it felt like the splintering of everything, you know, everything was coming down and it didn't. And there are so many things that she lists that I've heard in church circles being pointed at as this is the thing that will bring us down. And yet it's part of the the wave of history. It's part of all of the things that have happened moving us along and taking us with it is what she says. And one thing she writes about is that after each one of these big upheavals, mm-hmm. there's often a lot of violence. Oh, she like does the say Thirty that. Years' yeah. War and all of these things, Crusades. and that, that is something we need to look for and perhaps guard against, if possible. Oh boy! So that was really interesting to me. Yeah. How could you guard against that if that is a common? Outcome. She doesn't say that happens every time. That's not in her list. Thank God. But then she does <laughs> talk about all these things that happen. The Inquisition. Mm-hmm. These things happen in response to. The Reformation, and in all of them, the schism, and uh, and on and on it goes. Wait until you Gregory see it. the yeah. Great. Yeah, but I think too at the end, what you said about how does she, you know, how do they know? They do say much less. You know what I mean? Like she, she has much less to say about where it's going, even though you feel like that's the point she's getting to through all of this like history and like you know, and then this happened and then that happened, and of course, then this would make sense that this would be the response to that. When it gets to the, where is it going? There's very little. She sketches it out, but it's only a sketch. True. Because here we are, you know, and we do get to influence it, you know, and we're participating in it whether we want to or not. So that's sort of fascinating, you know, to try to take a step away from the present of what you're actually living in and observe it. It's done well and then it's done not so well by the same person, you know. Right. So... (laughs) I wanted to ask you about something. Okay. So because you have close friendships with people who are Buddhist, and she mentions Buddhism in here, and then I have a... So I want to read what she says, and I don't know how to put this in context. Let's see. She talks about the big question being, where is the authority? And then there are some secondary questions, and one of them is about if there are all these religions that are viable. You know, I mean, here they are. They're still existing. There are people, you know, still tightly woven to them. How do you know which to choose? Or how do you know which one is truth? Or, you know, she frames it in a very specific question that I won't be able to find right now. But it's about if there are so many religions, how do you pick one, right? And so that's the context of this statement. It's on page 96. Then came Buddhism with its rich rich narrative of wisdom experience, with its centuries of comfortable conversation about the life of the human spirit, with its full vocabulary and lush rhetoric, with its sensible and sensate practices for incorporating the body into the spirit's world, with its exotic ornaments and tranquil aesthetic, with its assurance that worthy and even enviable cultures can arise from meditation as readily as from a frenetic work ethic. 
with its emphasis on stillness and its teaching about the reality beyond the illusion. So beautiful description, right, of Buddhism. Then came Buddhism with all the tools and appointments needed to enter the subjective experience fully and fearlessly, fully and fearlessly and unencumbered by theism. It's without God. The pivot point here is not per se the fact that Buddhism, at least in some of its branches, is non-theistic. The pivot point is that because of it being non-theistic, Buddhism can insinuate itself, quite innocently even, into the practice of almost any institutionalized religion without abrasion or apparent conflict for that religion's faithful. So the taking on of another religion's practices or expertise, let's say, by Christianity. We'll just keep it to Christianity because that's our experience. My question for you is, how do you, first of all, do you agree with her? Do, do you see that as being true in the sense of Buddhism sort of being <laughs> the the butter that can spread across all of the breads, you know, kind of thing? Or I love that image. <laughs> uh, I do agree with her. And uh -huh. I'm not an expert on Buddhism. Right. But it isn't a religion in the sense of you you believe this or else. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> it is more of a life practice. Uh-huh. And I do think that there are some elements of Buddhism that are deeply in Christianity. Mm -hmm. If you look back to the Desert Fathers and some of the monastic traditions and contemplative prayer, right. that there are a lot of similar practices that maybe in our current expression we're not as familiar with. Right. But I agree with her, although I wouldn't have thought to say it that way. Uh-huh. Um, it made me think of you, and it made me think of, um, first of all, there's a thing that Richard Rohr says about Jesus, that we made a mistake by making a religion in his name, that he came with a message for all religions about how to be truly human. And I've thought a lot about that statement, like, would Jesus possibly be also the butter that goes across all breads you know um or is that offensive to people I, well you know? i think it's great to try it on what does that look like mm -hmm. so if jesus came he was subversive he was saying you people that think you have all the religious authority mm -hmm. you're actually the problem mm -hmm. right so what if he's saying that to every group of religious people that think they have all the authority right through every religion in all time right in that sense i think wow that really that's really interesting. That's really compelling. Yes. He came to reform his own religion. Right. And in the process, he can reform all religions. I think that's a really interesting idea. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting to hear it stated the same way, you know, for another entity like Buddhism. I think only as a product of the great emergence, like now being postmodern, this idea that truth is relative, that modernity would have dictated that there's absolute truth. You know, like you can nail it down, you can define it, and time immemorial, that is what it is. Truth is truth. And now we're in a space where I will hear often, and I, I, I don't know where it came from exactly, but the phrase, you know, truth is truth wherever you find it. And it's sort of like these gems, you know, that you can find in other places that still connect you to the source. And one thing about postmodernism is it values paradox. Yes. And I feel like Jesus taught and, you know, the parables are all full of paradox. And don't you that, find it life-giving yes. when that is described? And it is threatening, though, to a lot of 
expressions of sure. the church. That you could say Jesus came to reform his own church. When I said that, it felt really scary. Like, what if someone hears that and thinks that <laughs> I mean that he was just a guy? Okay, right? sure. I don't mean that. Like, yes, and, right? Yes, uh-huh. he was a guy that came to reform his own religion. Right. And he was the incarnation of God. Uh-huh. Right? It can be both. Absolutely. That what, in, his particular, in his particular goals, who knows? Mm-hmm. But... Um, yeah, that's just up for interpretation. That, that's that, what that we interpret. paradox mm. of God and man. Right. That's the paradox right in his own body. Right. And the paradox that we feel all the time in life, that good and evil can come from the same person. You know, that something can be perceived as destructive and bring forth life. You know, those paradoxes are real. I think that's part of what she's describing in The Great Emergence and what creates that swirling center that conversation, you mm-hmm. know, like, let's talk about that as opposed right. to, well, here's why, you know, and blah, 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 which does feel life-giving to me. There's something in here I wanted to read that when I first read it, it struck me as so moving and it still does. And yet there's something else that I've read afterwards that makes me have some questions about myself. So that's, that's kind of where this is going. Okay. So This is a story that she references in the book, but she doesn't put it in detail. She details the story in the workbook. So that's what I'm reading from is the workbook, which is called Embracing Emergence Christianity, Phyllis Tickle on the Church's Next Rummage Sale. Some 20 years ago now, I was addressing a cathedral gathering on the historicity. I don't know how to say that word. Historicity? Historicity. Thank you. Of the virgin birth. I'll stop right there just to say that I've had to look up many words while reading this book <laughs> over and over Post-modern. again. Postmodern. I looked up that one. Yes. Kept and saying that. Like, I think I know what that means, but maybe theonomy and meta narrative. <laughs> we should have a, a vocabulary. <laughs> anyway, historicity of the virgin birth. The cathedral young people had served the evening's dinner and were busily scraping plates and doing general cleanup when I began the opening sections of the lecture I had come to give. The longer I talked, the more I noticed one youngster, no more than 17 at the most, scraping more and more slowly until at last he gave up and took a back seat as part of the audience. When all the talking was done, he hung back until the last of the adults had left. He looked at me tentatively and, gaining courage, finally came up front and said, May I ask you something? Certainly, I said. What about? It's about the virgin birth thing, he said. I don't understand. What don't you understand, I asked, being myself rather curious by now because of his intensity and earnestness. I don't understand, he said, what their problem is. And he gestured toward the empty chairs the adults had just vacated. What do you mean, I asked him. Well, he said... It's just so beautiful that it has to be true, whether it happened or not. And I remember reading that story for the first time and it hitting me like right dead center because of all the arguments that had been had about, is it accurate? You know, is the scripture, you know, trustworthy and reliable? Uh, Can you go back and, and say that this actually happened or Jesus even actually said that, you know, and there's all this kind of picking apart, right? And then there's this concept of myth, right? Now, myth is a scary word for a lot of Christians. It tends to, you know, have the connotation of it's not real. It's not true. It's, it's a fairy tale. And yet myth can be, or maybe 
truly is this sort of depth of story that narrative has where the truths are so true that they lie underneath it. But I know there's been a lot written about it and the idea that it has power, that the story has power because it demonstrates a truth that you feel in your bones, right? You just sort of know, you can acknowledge it as a human. So that story did that. And I I remember having um, some really interesting conversations, you know, about the virgin birth. And as a Christian, do you need to believe that to be a Christian? You know, and of course, there's going to be people weighing in on that one way and weighing in on another. And this book does that for people. And in fact, this is the book that I think if there was any way to engage our listeners, you know, I would love to hear what other people think about this and how would you weigh in and how would you interpret what she's saying? Do you think it she's saying this or would you see it a different way? There's just so much here, you know, to kind of grapple with. Well, we do have our email, okay. which is giftgirlsfaith at gmail.com. Wonderful. Yes. So, so I would invite always that. Always email us there or, of course, go to our website, giftgirls.blog. Right. And we're going to have there the link to this book and to the workbook. Uh-huh. We also have reflection questions for this conversation. And also for this, the paired scripture reading is going to be the book of James. Just because the book of James to me is always sort of surprising because it seems to conflict a little bit uh-huh. with faith and faith alone. Yes. Um, So I just love that because it adds paradox right into the middle of our scriptures. Faith and faith alone. Yes, absolutely. And yet faith without works is dead. Both. Both are true. So that's why the book of James is going to be the paired scripture reading for this. The link to that will also be on the website. I am on page 149. And this is where she references that story that I read in, in detail. She starts with what she calls a $10 word, (laughs) all the words I've had to look up. She's describing the word orthonomy, Pythagorean originally in use and almost mystical in connotation. It means to name the principles or resonances that create the harmony of sounds in poetry or music and the order of things in creation. It is also the word used in the Septuagint and in the Christian New Testament to name the law and its perfection as the expression of the governance of God. So that makes me think it's the type of thing like in the Psalms, when um, the psalmist is saying, how I love your your ways, your laws, you know, like they are honey to my lips. And you know, he's all these like kind of beautiful phrases to describe the law, you know, which is not something we would see as poetic. Right. So that's the type of thing she's describing that as an American Western Christian, it may be hard to sort of capture it. And yet beauty is something that is, and I mean beauty in its truest, most spiritual sense of an interaction between people, the beauty of something happening that shouldn't have happened in the sense of, you could say miraculous, but you could also say grace. Yes, that kind of beauty, right? And that's what I sort of hear in in what she's describing. She says... In some, nomos, that's part of the word, is most nearly the ineffable beauty in that which is divine, especially as it becomes incarnate within space and time. Orthonomy may be defined then as a kind of correct harmoniousness or beauty. In effect, when it is used as here, it means the employment of aesthetic or harmonic purity as a tool for discerning the truth and therefore the intent and authority of anything be that thing either doctrine or practice. 
Thus, it is very common to find that many emergent Christians are genuinely confused and befuddled by Reformation Protestants' constant wrestling with modernist questions of historicity. Historicity. <laughs> historicity. <laughs> she then leads into our discussions over the virgin birth, right? And so I take it that, well, beauty is something that can be an authority for me. Okay, that's where I'm going with this. I'm saying all of that to say, when I identify beauty, I see that as God's handprint on things, right? But she says, at first blush, this is a refreshing approach and a relief that one wants to embrace it immediately. But a good rabbi, Judaism has wrestled with the matter long enough to know it well, will be quick to point out that what one has in orthonomy when used thus is no more than a new rendition of an old error. <laughs> to be exact, it is a variation upon Keatsian heresy after John Keats and his famous observation that truth is beauty and beauty is truth. Beauty, in point of fact, rests in the eye of the beholder. To quote another famous cliche, it is therefore subject to all the conditioning and interpretive filtering of human culture. An action or object is not, in other words, divine or holy or authoritative simply by virtue of appearing beautiful or harmonious or even efficacious. And so she sort of like unravels the whole thing for me. I'm not quite sure what to do with that, with what she's saying, that it can't be trusted really, you know, that it's that subjective. So I'm adding this to our talk without having a resolution to it. But those are the questions that come to me right. when I read things like this. Well, a good book often makes more questions than it answers. And what I hope from the podcast that we're doing together is not necessarily a set of answers. I want to do this to have conversations about the things that I wonder about, mm -hmm. um, as well as it's acceptable to not know. Yay! <laughs> Should we close with another one of Phyllis Tickle's prayers? Yeah. So this is the one that was very familiar to me at a time when our church was, you know, kind of playing with the idea of creating our own liturgy without a liturgical background. <laughs> this was the prayer that, that I really thought, you know, this would be such a um, corporate unifying prayer to pray at the end of every service, you know, and this is the one that I do feel close to. Lord God, Almighty and everlasting Father, you have brought me in safety to this new day. Preserve me with your mighty power that I may not fall into sin nor become overcome by adversity. And in all I do, direct me to the fulfilling of your purpose. Through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Amen. Amen.